Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to this episode of Shuddhashur's Free Thought Podcast. Today, we speak to Heather Elbero. Heather is a lecturer in Global Studies at Nottingham Trent University's Department of History, Languages and Global Culture. Her specialisation is in global environmental politics and her research looks at green utopianism, critical post-human theory, environmental sociology, environmental ethics and eco-criticism. Today we speak to her about how to make the future more sustainable by discussing climate change and the challenges that lie ahead for climate justice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to go straight into this. Um, (laughs) Climate change and um, environmental sustainability and eco-justice are hot topic issues, (laughs) but they also are often extremely divisive. What's your, what's been your experience of um, having these as conversations as someone who is also an educator uh, and how where where do you think the biggest challenge lies at the moment oh um kind of the question of the hour isn't it thank you um <laughs> yes yeah, so uh divisive um on a number of fronts and, and especially depending on on um what sort of um particular like realm you look at um Definitely. I mean, well, there was a ray of hope recently for many, many who will be familiar with uh, Biden deciding to rejoin the Paris Agreement after Trump made history by being the only uh, nation state to to exit. Um, so we ha- have some hope in these fronts. But what um, it just to sort of like follow this example of the U.S. and as is a really good example of the deep political economic polarization um, and the sort of damage that's been done by um by heads of state like Trump, as well as um, the Brazilian president, Bolsonaro, um, around the downplaying of environmental problems, um, if not outright um, dismissing them as even being real or even being an existential threat. And this sort of peddling, I think what we can see, the peddling of the idea that um, it's either concern over the economy and economic growth or uh, the protection of the environment. And that rather than seeing these two things as fundamentally integrated. And like you mentioned, I think in the beginning, uh, the question of justice, that's the whole idea behind environmental justice is that these things are very closely intertwined. You can't have ecological well-being and sustainability without guaranteeing um, social sustainable, uh, social well-being, breaking down hierarchies and inequalities around uh, class, race, gender, access to resources. And what we've seen kind of on that point as well is um, that far from another kind of very contentious debate within uh, issues around the environment is the, the idea of population growth. But what something like that tends to over sort of overshadow is that a, a, a sort of an overwhelming amount of evidence suggests that it's not numbers, it's not uh, people as this sort of homogenous whole that are responsible for contemporary breakdown, but it's, again, inequality. Uh, socioeconomic mm-hmm. inequality and poverty are the key drivers loss of climate change, uh, not numbers. So again, this shows how the role of power, the role of inequality along class lines, inequalities around who gets what and why, these fundamental political questions. Um, and I think that in many kind of mainstream debates, these things are treated separately, but they definitely aren't. I think the point that you just raised about the questions of um, the kind of fallacy of overpopulation as the mm. um, problem where it kind of ignores the nuance of how that's actually affecting 
uh, and how that's affected by inequalities and the, mm. the access to resources. Um, that's such a vital challenge because um, mm. the listeners for our podcast um, are quite global and um, a lot of the um, original listeners for our podcast are based in Bangladesh. Um, mm. That's where Shuddha Shur as a website got its, uh, as a platform rather, got its beginnings. And of course, a massive challenge that um, Bangladesh in particular seems to face, but um, generally speaking, the global South does, mm. is this perception that the quote unquote undeveloped world or underdeveloped world is um, overpopulated uh, mm. and creates a disproportionate amount of pollution. Would you say that's accurate? Um, absolutely not. So actually, um, I, I'm teaching currently an MA, a master's module on international development, and we're looking at alternative discourses and approaches to development. Development goals is it's the reduction of inequality. So it's inequality is so important that even these mainstream uh, institutions and bodies like the UN recognize it as something that has to be tackled if you're going to um, achieve sustainability of any kind. Um, but no, so if you look at some of the recent stats, they're quite staggering on um, the disproportionate impact of transnational corporations like Shell and BP and the ecological and, and carbon footprint of uh, the world's 1% richest people, so like people like Bezos, CEOs, their climate, carbon and ecological footprint is something, I mean, I forget exactly, but it's, I mean, hundreds or if not, it, like the more order of magnitude, much greater than the impact of an entire country in the global south. And mm -hmm. so it really shows you that it's, that it's sort of a red herring, this focus on numbers. Right. And of course, the, the unfortunate aspect is that the impact of climate change does not confine itself to borders. Mm -hmm. So while um, vulnerable populations may not be the ones creating the problems, they're often the ones who are facing the brunt of it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the cruelest irony of the current era, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. Historically, as well as presently, uh, populations in the developing world are least responsible and they bear the brunt. And then when you kind of like put a microscope on that even further, you see other um, uh, inequalities and, and hierarchies along gender. So women comprise around 70 percent of the world's poor and they are uh, among the groups highest uh, at risk of things like uh, sea level rise, uh, more frequent and, in, and violent storms, droughts. I think... Um, the kind of more nuanced approach to understanding environmental impact as part of a um, broader aspect of global inequality is long overdue. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering what you'd say to the kind of response we often see in um, mainstream media, where a lot of the um, a lot of the responsibility seems to be placed on the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, a very big example of it um, recently, for instance, was um, the wonderful series of documentaries that David Attenborough has done. <laughs> and they're, they're great in terms of raising awareness and raising information and knowledge about the way different ecosystems work. Mm -hmm. uh, but it felt like there was an aspect of suggesting that um, we as individuals ruin the planet if we don't recycle properly. And while I am in no way suggesting that 
individuals shouldn't be more sustainable and practice more sustainably. It sometimes feels like there's a massive um, missed opportunity in not critiquing corporations and also not critiquing militaries, which are huge polluters mm-hmm. and people don't want to talk about that. Um, and I'm just wondering um, from your experience, how do you cross that divide? Um, absolutely. That's an excellent um, point that the what you see, like you mentioned, the mainstream media and even in these very useful shows, um, like you mentioned, they've been very instrumental in garnering public concern and fostering a sense of public awe over ecosystems. And increasingly, the, some of the ones that came out more recently, I think our planet as well, having a more urgent, a sense of urgency, a tone that um, change, fundamental changes are needed. However, they really kind of um, rarely, if ever, even allude to the need for systemic transformations, for for, um, for political change, for calling uh, attention to the, the ones who are most responsible, which again, uh, trans- um, wealthy elite. So again, it's an issue of power and also the sort of global north and global south divide, the fact that um, we still have key uh, polluters key emitters like the US, uh, uh, the EU, and now increasingly China, who's actually surpassed um, the US as the the key global emitter. Um, but this emphasis, again, is, um, as you mentioned so so well, this saying, well, you know, if you just, uh, if you buy green light bulbs, you buy an electric car, or even sort of the whole uh, uh, luxury communist utopia approach of people like, um, uh, like uh, Elon Musk saying, oh, you know, it's just about buying sort of green electric vehicles or even the other aspect of that narrative, which is escaping to Mars and colonizing Mars, this techno utopia, utopian approach completely mm-hmm. uh, overlooks, again, the, the fact that the changes that we need are fundamentally political. They're not technical and they're not something that should be placed. That kind of change is not something that can come from emphasizing individual uh, transformations in their lifestyle, although, of course, they can be useful and helpful. Um, it's not an individual problem. Um, and it's this kind of, this narrative, this approach, this individualized approach to environmental change feeds into the sort of neoliberal capitalist approach and system that we operate within. And it's sort of kind of playing into that hand. And capitalism has very been very good at co-opting these kinds of narratives for change and sort of furthers that kind of, it sort of, fe- it, it feeds off of that, um, that emphasis on, on growth and consumerism or the green capitalist approach. That it's simply about mm-hmm. buying and consuming greener products rather than questioning consumption itself, rather than questioning inequality. Right, absolutely. Um, it also certainly doesn't help that um, a, lot of, um, a lot of the kind of aspects of green capitalism seem to be as much about PR as it is about actual meaningful change. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's that question of perception that really needs to be tackled. Mm. Um, uh, could you could you talk talk just a little bit about the kinds of um, environmental justice models that you see the most potential in? Because I think um, what's important for us to try and engage with isn't just being able to critique, mm. but also ideally look towards models that maybe break beyond this or maybe not even break beyond it completely but break um some of these aspects in certain ways and maybe find best practice so what what are perhaps some groups or some practitioners or some models that that you find particular value in um so 
so yes, this is the other, like you really like how you point out that it's not just about critique. The idea is to, to change things, to transform things, to, to engage and prefigure uh, and imaginatively explore better ways of living um, and more inclusive ways of living. Um, so that's kind of the other aspect of my work other than uh, um, topics around uh, and research around political uh, theory and environmental politics and development. I also look at green utopianism. So that whole field that's engaged pre precisely this kind of uh, project of not only critiquing the environmental drawbacks of our existing society, but then trying to project or engage in or explore different ways. Um, so I like, I've been quite a, so a lot of my research centers around environmental movements. Um, and so I've been quite keen on um, Extinction Rebellion Citizens Assembly approach, that whole direct democratic uh, approach to addressing environmental problems and trying to prefigure different ways, more egalitarian ways of living, uh, you know, decentralizing decision-making, making it much more inclusive, including the voices who are actually implicated in these, in these issues. Um, mm -hmm. That sort of model, I think, is very interesting, or anything like that, that sort of adopts a decentralized democratic um, approach. So not only decision-making and addressing environmental problems, but organizing society along these kinds of lines as well. Um, there's, uh, I mean, there, the Global Eco-Village Network is another kind of interesting resource. So uh, they document basically uh, green intentional communities all over the world. There are thousands of them. I think in the U.S., like 6,000 alone. Um, but that's a really good resource for documenting um, actual experiments of people living together to prefigure um, these kinds of um, these kinds of different, more ecologically sustainable and egalitarian uh, worlds. Mm -hmm. And oh, sort of drawing a blank in terms of other examples. I mean, the Green New Deal, um, different iterations of the Green New Deal, particularly as proposed by um, by uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Howie Hawkins, I think, um, in terms of more mainstream approaches in politics, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think are really promising as well. Um, so a lot of, I would say, at the community level, so at the grassroots level, we have a lot of promising examples of these, these sorts of initiatives. Um, in the UK as well, we have, there's the Transition Towns Network, another kind of um, series of eco-communities that are trying to sort of live locally uh, in terms of using local currencies, local food production, uh, living out more kind of egalitarian ways of living, uh, breaking down not only... Um, uh, hierarchies between humans, nature, and other species, but, you know, along race and, and class and things like this. So there's too much to mention, really. <laughs> which is, um, which is an encouraging sign, yeah. to, to be quite honest. Um, it's, it's um, when you're dealing with something quite so um, difficult and urgent, it's um, encouraging for our listeners to know that there are resources and we should, um, we should be able to look at, out for them. Um, I'm going to also look at kind of the other side of it, which is that um, Extinction Rebellion in particular has come under some critiques mm. for its approach. Um, obviously, I'm discounting the critiques that come from the establishment that it's trying to undermine because they would obviously not be quite pleased with that. <laughs> but um, how, um, how, do you, how important is it for these groups to be intersectional? But more so than that, um, how um, well do you think these groups are actually taking these critiques on? Mm. Because I can understand that sometimes when you are fighting for a very specific and very just cause, 
um, there sometimes needs to be a rigidity in the approach you take yeah. in order to protect yourself from being overwhelmed. And I can appreciate that. So how mm-hmm. do you, um, from, from what you've seen of these groups, um, how do you think they're able to balance it? And where are perhaps some areas that they can work on a little bit more? That's an excellent question. Um, yes, so that's something that I noticed when I did my PhD research on radical green groups of various kinds. I incorporated XR activists towards the end because at the time they were newly emergent when I had this, so they weren't around when I first started my PhD. Um, and I mm-hmm. mainly looked at radical environmental groups like Earth First, uh, Sea Shepherd, um, uh, the Earth Liberation Front, Hambacher. So all of these, the definition being for selection was that they had these radically anti-hierarchical ecological worldviews. So they viewed themselves as fundamentally embedded in ecosystems. They critiqued um, issues around uh, anthropocentrism, the idea that humans are separate from and superior to nature. So they've had really radical mm-hmm. worldviews. And they also um, employed radical tactics to, to stop um, ecological destruction at its source. So they are very famous for, uh, well, infamous for uh, destroying machinery, tractors, physically blockading roads to uh, keep lorries from getting to mining sites that kind of thing. And then I sort of started to look at XR. And one thing that really struck me and something that I had read about um, for a long time that in the environmental movement in the West has been decidedly white and middle class. Um, and that's something I saw in my sample as well when I, when I spoke to these activists. Very, very concerned with um, anything having to do with environmental exploitation. And to be fair to them, uh, whereas in the 70s and 80s when these groups first emerged, they were exclusively focused on environmental issues. And they some of the segments within these movements were even actively against uh, thinking about class and race and gender. Now that mm-hmm. has changed decidedly. So they, at least in terms of their discussions with each other, they are actively aware and they aim to be uh, intersectional. But even still, when I was at some of their gatherings and meetings and at XR, um, similar thing happened recently when they were saying decolonize XR, as you, uh, as you point out. Uh, very white faces, very middle class. Um, and it's an issue that's plagued the environmental movement for a very long time. And they seem to still be struggling with it um, for, I mean, an, one part of potentially one, one issue that might be going on is they, they still um, haven't broadened their, their uh, remit as they should. They haven't really, they've been made attempts, but they haven't really um, critically assessed the interconnections between these different kinds of inequality and haven't really joined them together. And at XR recently, just, just as, as you alluded to, um, they had very rightly other people with banners saying decolonize XR because you see it's just very um an exclusive sort of bunch and it's it's problematic Mm -hmm. because you know you're not if you're trying to gesture towards a better society you need to include everybody you can't just um you know have this sort of um this sort of limited approach um so and this kind of sort of reminds me of of a quote by uh the late eco-philosopher about Plumwood. She, I do a lot of work with her. She's um, quite fascinating for her work with um, ant- or post-colonial or decolonial analyses of, of human nature relations. She did a lot of work with indigenous groups. And she said that with, um, until liberation theory connects all of the lines, until it looks at how uh, class, race, ethnicity, uh, sexuality, uh, gender, and species uh, intersect and how these inequalities reinforce one another, uh, there won't be significant change. And the day that this does happen, they could shake the structural foundations of oppression to their core. Um, and that's what I would say, that it is crucial that all of these movements join forces and to pay closer attention to how all of these issues, these, these axes of oppression intersect, and that you cannot just look at one 
without looking at all of them. I think that's an extremely um, vital point to remember. And um, perhaps something that should be at the ethos of any movement towards change. Um, you already mentioned uh, some of the uh, instances of Alpine, for instance, working within, or rather working to highlight indigenous voices. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I remember, for instance, during the uh, most recent major Amazon forest fires, there was almost an erasure in some circles of the fact that there were indigenous protectors of the land already doing that mm -hmm. work. Um, and likewise with the um, Australian wildfires. And I'm sometimes um, wondering, and, and obviously I have no, I, I don't know what the correct way to do this would be, but I do sometimes wonder what the best way to bridge that particular gap would be, because there's obviously a massive level of um, trauma and distrust mm -hmm. that exist within Indigenous communities mm -hmm. for um, particularly white communities, but really for any settler colonial mm -hmm. community. Um, how do you bridge that gap as part of environmental justice? Uh, yeah, that's a it's a really good question. It's one that I've been needing to sort of look further into because um, Indigenous um, struggles, Indigenous resistance against environmental decline is an area that I've I've sort of been hoping to focus on post PhD work um, that I don't know enough about at the moment. Um, and I have some colleagues that I'm trying to work on um, on some projects around this. But uh, bridging the gap, I mean, that's sort of a that's sort of an issue that has been plaguing uh, all of these movements in different ways for, for such a long time. Um, and I mean, any kind, these kinds of things, these kind of these kinds of fissures only ultimately detract and, and weaken the, the ability um, of these movements to to, guard, to sort of promote significant transformation. Because so I think it's definitely a numbers game. I mean, um, for these kinds of wide societal, wide scale societal structural shifts, you, you need numbers, you need collaboration, cross, uh, cross disciplinary collaboration, collaboration across different movement strands. Um, I think approach, I mean, the only thing I could probably say on this, because um, again, I, I haven't really, it's not really something that I've, I've ex investigated very much, but approaching um, their struggles, their experiences, their histories with sensitivity and humility and from a standpoint of, of trying to help and, and finding a way to join them, uh, join forces with them without coming sort of that approach where it was that, that expert or that savior from, from the external coming in to impose a, a way of doing things, a way of, of, of revolting and a way of doing social movement. Um, I would say just starting from that stance would be a way forward. I think that's great to, um, a, again, a great piece of advice to take is just center the voices mm. that, that are in that context. Um, I don't think it's possible to have a conversation about um, climate change and environmental justice in 2021 without acknowledging the impact that the pandemic has had in reconfiguring our lives and um how um how do you see the world post pandemic if if obviously post pandemic is even a possibility <laughs> but how um how do you see that for good and for bad yes i mean um as you rightly point out it's been sort of a 
a boundary shattering event in a number of ways, not just geographically, but conceptually. Um, what we've seen now is, is this very tiny, tiny organism with truly earth moving capabilities. So I think it's shattered or at least dealt a further blow to the idea that humans um, have this any sense of supremacy, that they are the primary earth movers. Um, this little thing, this little tiny organism brought entire global economies to their knees, uh, made a mockery of boundaries of any kind. Um, and I think reckoning with these changes uh, are something that we're going to have to do. They're going to have profound impacts on how, on how what, a number of aspects of daily life. Um, and definitely another thing they kind of, that kind of demonstrated is that uh, you know, it's very, very possible to act quickly and organized to deal with a particular threat or issue. So climate change, addressing climate mm -hmm. change is something that is very, very possible. What, you know, what, it's, what we lack is often political will. Um, but it's demonstrated a lot of things. It's unearthed uh, the very, very profound inequalities in our, in our socioeconomic systems. It's showed um, who, who the actual backbones of society are uh it's, it's not ceos it's not people like bezos and musk it's uh nhs workers <laughs> it's uh people who work at aldi at supermarkets um on the front lines um i think it's revealed so many different truths like that um and my hope would be that this sort of sticks with us and it, and it gets us to sort of think about what these implications are um but definitely um one of the ones that I think are most, or at least because of my work around environmental issues and particularly on, on non-human species and non-human and human interactions, is this, this very sort of coming to the forefront of how fundamentally uh, interconnected we are with other species, with other entities, uh, with one another, which again was revealed by the sort of global um, economic down, downfall of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and it also highlighted, I mean, all of the sort of uh, uh, experiments in, in, in collective action and in solidarity, communities banding together to help one another, uh, people going out to get medicine for their elderly neighbor. It showed that we have sort of the building blocks of a better society. And the idea that maybe people are just, you know, people, uh, the media made a field day around, uh, you know, supermarket shelves going empty, people just hoarding uh, toilet paper and, and, and pasta and leaving nothing for others. But then they didn't focus on all of these examples of, of, of solidarity, of people helping each other, of fellow feeling, um, which, so I mm -hmm. think that's something that's very important to focus on. And it would be nice if this can all be taken as sort of a, of a lesson uh, to show that radical, radical reconfigurations of daily life are obviously possible. And then we can maybe even mold them in different ways. Yeah, and just we we need that um, we kind of need that impetus to actually get it going. But definitely that point on on the lack of political will feels um, so painfully relevant to the general kind of pace at which governments have been responding to yeah. climate change, which seems like such a it, it seems like such an obvious threat, <laughs> <laughs> and yet um, there's just such a lack of action mm. regarding it. Um, something that you've been saying throughout the course of our conversation, which um, I'd actually like to just come and un unpick a little because I think it's fascinating. Um, a lot of times the conception, or perhaps rather it would be fair to say the misconception of environmental justice movements seems to be this idea that it tries to separate humanity from um 
the ecosystem in which mm. we live in in the idea that it either tries to you know from from the perspective of those who don't want to grapple with mm. climate change who don't think it's a problem they obviously go on the idea that humans mm. are superior but we sometimes also see the opposite side um where there's this perception that humans are the problem mm. um and how how important is it to kind of challenge that angle as well because i actually quite like um and i'm very appreciative of of the kind of work that focuses a lot more as humans part mm. of the ecosystem because we are um but more more than how important that is because i think that's a that's, that's a pretty obvious answer in, in some cases um how much do you think people are actually engaging with the idea because again the the conception uh, whether it's true or not, sometimes seems to be that humans are the problem. Mm. We saw that during the pandemic mm. as well. Um, you know, posts such as saying humans are the real virus, which kind of erases some of the issues, some of the more nuanced issues of, of humans mm. suffering from from it and, and inequality facing it. So how 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 do we reconfigure that mm. narrative and that rhetoric? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a, a fantastic point, and that's a very problematic trope that also has sort of surfaced throughout um, environmental movements, environmental narratives, and as, as we've seen in the mainstream media for, 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 you know, kind of surfacing its head every now and then and bopping down. Um, so as you point out, number one, we've already discussed that attributing um, blame to a blanket humanity, homogenous humanity as a whole, completely overrides the very real socioeconomic and political inequities that lead to differential impacts on the environment across uh, space and time. So that's number one, that's the problem with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it also, again, reproduces that mythical dualism between uh, humans and, and, and nature. So the, the, the sort of narrative that I, at least I've also seen amongst not so prevalent today as it was before, but still sometimes the idea that humans are the virus, as you mentioned, the scourge. Uh, it's humans who are the problem that, that and sometimes even the misanthropic claim that humans should either be eradicated or radically reduced in their numbers in order to establish some sort of a, a, an ecological harmony which first of all, overrides the fact that systems are dynamic, they're ever-changing, they have been um, throughout, throughout evolutionary history, and that you know, humans are fundamentally part of these wider ecosystems. Um, there never ever was a time, uh, well, obviously, it, you know, evolutionary history time, other species existed before us, but uh, humans have always been, you know, since we came on the scene, we've been fundamentally part of natural ecosystems. There is no such thing as this pristine, natural untouched place uh that exists apart from us we are you know if we look at the composition mm -hmm. of our skin our immune systems uh everything everything about our very bodies they're composed of viral and bacterial others um whole communities and in fact it's such to some to the degree that some that some uh, uh some conservation biologists and, and geneticists have said that you know what 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 even is the identity of the human when it's so composed of, of natural others so it really questions first of all the boundaries not only between nature and culture and nature and society but between the human self uh the human body and 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 the sort of external environment so it's fundamentally not only is it ontologically or in other words uh factually incorrect to put to pose this binary between humans and nature but it's as we've sort of suggested politically and ethically extremely problematic um whereas going forward and sort of one of the kind of key examples of this within the conservation community is the sort of, uh, I don't know if you've heard of, but the kind of nature needs half movement, the half earth proposal, 
where they're proposing to set off mm -hmm. half of the Earth's landmass for untouched, pristine nature preserves, completely devoid of human interference. Now, first of all, that in the past, that kind of approach in conservation, that fortress conservation has entailed the mass displacement of local indigenous populations on this erroneous notion that they don't belong there because they're humans, because humans pollute naturally and that they're just not natural things. Very really highly problematic. So even if this kind of model could be implemented, which it couldn't, um, it sort of has these very serious ethical and uh, social justice, social and environmental justice concerns implicated. So this would be highly problematic approach. And it's something that is quite popular in the in the conservation community, even though other conservationists have very mm -hmm. rightly critiqued it. Um, and so instead of these kinds of approaches, what I tend to sort of emphasize and what, and what other more radical voices in conservation communities tend to uh, say that is is the the way we should be going is integrating. So um, one of them, uh, one uh, approach is called convivial conservation, where things like urban rewilding, mm -hmm. building spaces where humans are seen as integrated, as living with other species, not apart from them. Uh, so, you know, greening, greening buildings, mm -hmm. uh, building sort of little pockets of nature reserve, uh, pockets of sort of rewilded spaces within urban centers everywhere to sort of enforce the idea that humans um, are, are always and always have been uh, part of these wider ecosystems of which we're a part and that to see this sort of fosters the idea that we are co-earthly inhabitants with all of these other beings with whom we have co-evolved uh, over vast swaths of evolutionary time. And so I think these approaches, approaches that emphasize uh, being with the other um, in every sense uh, are, are definitely the way to go going forward. Yeah, and uh, this brings us back, I think, to the idea of also pulling on indigenous mm. traditions and indigenous histories, because um, two two conversations I've seen recently, um, including ones I've seen shared on <laughs> on your social media profiles, have been um, examples such as the fact that the Maasai tribe are now the leading uh, conservationists when it comes to lion populations <laughs> yeah. in Africa, um, despite the again popular misconception that the Maasai are hunter hunter gatherers which again completely reduces an indigenous population to a very kind of yeah. savage idea but they are the ones at the forefront of lion conservation um there are um indigenous communities and fisher communities in bangladesh who have a symbiotic relationship with local otter populations that um sustain both their their livelihood as fishermen but also protect otters and wildlife so there's some fantastic stuff that's mm -hmm. already happening and maybe we should just have the humility to just sit back and listen <laughs> yeah absolutely you're absolutely right um any conservation project is doomed if it does not enlist the help the in active involvement of local people local communities indigenous groups the maasai is a fantastic example um this is i mean this is the way forward this this it's any attempt to extricate ourselves to to leave so this is similar to the whole bailing to mars thing as a solution to our issues extricating ourselves we need to actually mm -hmm. confront what we've done we need to learn to live together not live apart from others um this this approach towards integration careful integration and cohabitation and it will be, it's not going to be easy it'll be messy there'll be conflicts there'll be conflicts of interest especially with larger um uh fauna like uh, like predatory cats and things like this but it's something that we have to learn to do um so i want to try and kind of come back to 
the question of individuals again, but this time reflect on it in a much more personal way. Um, and 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 I, I will I will you know kind of put, shine the spotlight on on you here. But how um, how do you balance kind of the the very real kind of impact that your research has and the wide potential it has? with the reality that you are living and working in an academic institution there's obviously kind of questions around um academia's mm. ivory tower uh but also just the the very real fact of as um a young academic kind of making your place and making your space in in the institution um and just you know also frankly speaking managing things like paying rent <laughs> Um, where where do you see kind of the way individuals who may not be directly involved in uh, frontline academic um, frontline environmental activism, for instance, where do individuals like that and uh, like many of our listeners potentially, where do we fit in? in um, uh, yeah, well, so. Like, yeah, since the sort of uh, PhD journey and completing the PhD journey, I mean, um, it's, if, if anything, it's instead of sort of, I mean, other than learning quite a lot and becoming a quote unquote specialist in a very kind of niche area, I've just, I've really become aware of all the things I just don't know. Um, so all of these struggles around the world in so many different parts, all of these different perspectives on things and, and approaches. Uh, and I, and I've only scratched the surface because I've, I've Every time I try to keep catch up and read a book, uh, for instance, I've been dying to get to um, a book, I think, about the Dakota Access Pipeline pipeline struggle, uh, Our History is the Future, about it sort of indigenous uh, collective indigenous resistance against um, extractive industries. Uh, and I just, every time I add one of those to the list, there are like three more that I find. And that's one thing. So I think I've realized there's so much that I haven't really learned that I don't understand. And I've become painfully aware of the limits of academia. It's, as you say, I mean, it's, it can be uh, quite elitist. It can sometimes in some formats be removed from the realities and the struggles of other people, of, of you know, the general population of indigenous groups. And that's something going forward that I'd really like to try to break down those kinds of uh, barriers. So in any kind of work, um, and I'm trying to still figure out, so I'm, I'm currently just still teaching and I'm trying, I would like to get into research again um, with a, a postdoc or something like that, or even breaking out entirely and, and getting involved more in activist uh, work. And, but one, one focus I've always had, um, and some of the events I've organized with um, the Political Studies Association Environment Subgroup, which I'm a co-convener for. Um, one of the last um, events we had was uh, a workshop where we tried to bring uh, practitioners, uh, NGO uh, officials, um, and activists together in dialogue with academics to sort of bridge that divide uh, between academia and sort of the rest of society. And I think that's something that's very crucial and also something that's facilitated by interdisciplinary work, breaking outside of the bounds of your particular area of research, I think is very helpful. Just this general getting into dialogue with different voices, I think is very, very important. Um, it just opens sort of your horizons to things you didn't understand, didn't know. Because um, otherwise you can get quite sort of stuck in these these structures, these, these ways of seeing the world and ways of engaging um, that, so that's been sort of an aim of mine, if that if that makes sense. Um, a very worthwhile aim as as someone who's also in academia, I think that um 
mm. something we we struggle with um and it's it's not a perfect world and it's certainly not a perfect answer but it's certainly um a way forward that mm. is more collaborative and um for something like environmental justice what we need is mm. meaningful collaboration um I want to end by just asking something perhaps a bit more whimsical, but um, no less relevant, I think. Um, where do you see the environmental movement headed in the next few years? And and where do you think we can have some Um So we still see a tension um, that's sort of an elephant in the room between reformist elements of the movement, uh, NGOs like the WWF that emphasize legislative change, individual consumption, individual lifestyle changes, and the, the more radical elements, which effectively call for a revolution, a fundamental transformation across every as, uh, sector of society, uh, you know, polit change, political change, um, changes in values and worldviews. Um, so there's still that tension that that's, that is ongoing and that sort of still lies beneath the surface. And you can see playing out between these different aspects, these different strands of the environmental movement. Um, and so, I mean, I would, I would tend, and even if you look at, some of the reports by um, bodies like the IPCC, the sort of foremost authority on on climate change. Increasingly, they're using very quite radical language. They're saying we need, quote unquote, fundamental structural transformations. That entails, and they say across every sector, agriculture, they don't quite you know, mention the word politics and political systems, but they kind of increasingly gesture towards that. So I think we're going to have to face this quite, mm -hmm. quite soon. And if you look at the confluence of, of issues we're facing, uh, radically sort of rising uh, economic economic inequality, not only within countries, but between as well. Uh, climate breakdown and the sixth mass extinction. We're losing, we're losing life at an un unprecedented rate, um, hundreds to thousands of times the natural background rate. We've got a lot of serious problems that we need to address very quickly. So the Paris Agreement goal of, of reducing emissions to um, by 50% by 2030, um, we're nowhere near on track towards meeting that. This is going to cause untold suffering, uh, mm. hundreds of millions of climate migrants predicted by 2050. I mean, it's it's looking um, it's looking pretty uh, turbulent. So, to meet that, I think there'll have to be a, a sort of a discussion around exactly how we achieve these fundamental changes that are needed. Um, and increasingly, it's looking like we do need to challenge fundamentally um, a lot of these issues. In other words, it's a fundamentally political project. It's not a technical problem, and also. Uh, environmental movements need to be intersectional. They need to connect to the dots. Uh, if they don't, they won't be anywhere near as effective. Um, I think that's uh, um, a very poignant point to end on. And I think um, uh, gives us a, a direction to, to aim for. And um, one can only hope that uh, those in power um, share these goals and these concerns as well, uh, because I feel like a lot of what you said is achievable, but again, with mm. that point of mm -hmm. collaboration and working together. Um, so thank you so much for your time. I could have talked for hours, but um, we unfortunately must must wrap this up. But thank you so, so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So thank you so uh, much. Having you on. Thanks for listening. Until next time.